Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. Today we pick back up in our study through the Gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus. We trust that you will receive just what you need from the Lord today. Thank you for joining us. Greetings and salutations. If you do not know me, my name is the Right Reverend Dr. Stephen William Patsia. And today you have the privilege of sitting under my teaching. If you're visiting with us today, not everybody gets this incredible opportunity, so consider yourself fortunate if that is you. If you would be so kind, I'd like to request that you turn to St. Mark, the 32nd verse of the 10th chapter, as we talk today about the difference between worldly leadership and servant leadership. I believe you are now well prepared for the difference between those two with this ridiculous introduction. Friends, if you're joining us, and you want to run for the hills right now, I don't blame you, but that was all in jest. We're in a series, been on for the last 18 months off and on in the Gospel of Mark that we are calling the Way of Jesus. And in this series, we're just spending time with Jesus, learning from Jesus how to live our lives in the Way of Jesus. And today, if you're following on your notes, we are learning the Way of Jesus when it comes to leadership. And we will see, and as we experience in our own lives, there are really two ways to lead. There is a way to lead according to the way of the world, and there's a way to lead according to the way of Jesus. And I want to talk about the difference of those two things today and push us towards leading towards the way of Jesus. Now, I know what's happening right now in this room. Many of you are thinking, well, I'm not a leader. And I just want to say to every person in that room, that's simply not true. If you have any sort of relationship with anybody else, any person that's looking towards you, you are some sort of a leader. If you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're a sibling, you're a leader. If you have friends, you are a leader. If you're married, you are a leader. If you are an employer, you are a leader. If you are an employee, you are a leader. All of us are leaders in some capacity, and all of us today can learn from Jesus about how to lead the people he has placed in our path. So, in case you missed it from that introduction, we are looking at Mark's gospel of chapter 10, starting in verse 32. If you want to turn there in your Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible today with you, we always say we have Bibles in the seat underneath you do there. We'd love for you to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you as our gift to you today. We want everybody to have a copy of God's word. So let's pick it up. We're going to keep going through Mark's gospel, starting in chapter 10, verse 32, which says... They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Now, interesting verse here is we've talked about since chapter 8 of Mark, which is really the halfway point. From that moment on, Jesus and the disciples are making their way towards Jerusalem. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus was there. He had gone there ever since he was 12, at least three times a year, like every good Jewish man was required to do. He had also traveled there for some other feasts, and he had ministered around this area. But this journey to Jerusalem was going to be different. This would be his final journey to Jerusalem. This time, he would walk into Jerusalem only to walk out of Jerusalem with a cross on his back. Death waited for him there, and he knew it. But I love how Mark points out, if you're following on your notes, Jesus led the way with resolve while the others were afraid. 
Now Mark, or excuse me, Isaiah actually talks about this moment 700 years before Jesus was even born. He says these words in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. It's a powerful verse for me. Would you read it out loud with me on your notes there? Isaiah writes, Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Such a powerful verse, right? Jesus knows exactly what's waiting for him in Jerusalem. But he sets his face like flint and goes with determination. The rest of verse 32 says, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Now, as a quick reminder, this is the third time that Jesus has now taken them aside and explained what's going to happen in Jerusalem about his destiny. Verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, that's his favorite title for himself, a reference to Daniel 7, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, we're going to just pause here for a moment because as we've talked about before, every time Jesus gives this prediction about what's going to happen, he changes something, just a little subtle change. In the first time he said it, he talked about how the elders and the chief priests and the experts in the law are going to be the ones responsible for his death. The second time he talked to the disciples about it, he uses this idea that he will be handed over to these people. And in Greek, that is a divine passive. In other words, his father is the one who is at work in Jesus' death, up, upcoming death. And this time, who does he add to the list? Did you notice? The Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? Anybody who is not Jewish. So he adds this group as well. And I think it's important that we just pause here for a second to realize how important what's going on here. There's two things that Jesus is talking about. And if you're on your notes, the first thing is simply this. Jesus' death is no accident. He is walking into a situation that has been planned by him and the Father from eternity, right? He is going there for the particular reason. And the second part of that is we are all responsible for his death. He includes all the Jews and all the Gentiles. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, every one of us is responsible for Jesus on that cross. Have you ever been able to say that truly? We literally just sang that in the song, in that hymn, right? How deep the Father's love. It's because of me that Jesus is on the cross. You will never understand the love that God really has for you until you understand that he was there for you. That is the point that Jesus is making here. Now, you can imagine that since this is the third time he's explained this to them, they're finally going to get it. We have a saying, third time's the charm, right? Wrong. These disciples have ears to hear, but they don't listen to what he's saying, right? They still have in their mind this idea that the Messiah, they believe Jesus is the Messiah, but that he's going to be a conquering king, and he's going to enter into Jerusalem, and he's going to be this military hero who are going to kick the Romans out of the city. This is why the next verse reads, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Right away, we know this isn't going to go well, right? 
This is like when your kids come to you and they're like, mom and dad, before you say no, I'm already gonna say no as soon as you start with those words, right? Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? He asked, so patient. Look at their response in verse 37. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. What are they asking here? If you're following on your notes, they're asking for the highest positions of leadership in his kingdom. To sit at the Lord's right and the left, this refers to, I want to be the second in command and the third in command. Now, to me, it's not super surprising that James and John are the ones asking this. If we've been, so we've been going through the Gospels, you've probably noticed Jesus has singled out a group of three of his disciples to be a part of his inner circle, James, John, and Peter. Now, you also notice they conveniently leave Peter out of this discussion with Jesus, right? Honestly, I can only laugh at this point, at these guys. Jesus literally had just said to them, I'm going to prepare you guys for what's going to happen here. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to get flogged. I'm going to suffer like nobody's ever been suffered. And the next thing we read is they're jockeying for the highest positions of power in his kingdom. It's like somebody saying, do you mind if I keep the grand piano as the Titanic is sinking down to the depths of the ocean, right? Friends, James and John, they get one thing right, but everything else wrong. They're correct. Jesus is headed for glory. But as for how that glory would come, they still have no clue. They don't get it. In fact, some of you may notice at the end of Mark, when Jesus is on the cross, this incredible irony, who are on his right and his left? If you're following, it'd be two criminals on crosses on Jesus' right and left in his glory. Not what James and John are imagining. Now, I'm just going to pause here for a moment from the story because here we really get our first lesson on leadership and the difference between leadership in the way of Jesus and leadership in the way of the world. If you're following on your notes again, by approaching Jesus for the best seats in the kingdom, James and John, J and J, show the natural human desire for power and position. This is built into all of us right? This desire to be on top. This pretty much is when we think about leadership is how we would define it. A leader is the person on the top with the most power, the most authority, the most privilege. That is what it means to be a leader. And therefore today, who do we hold up as people of power and leadership in our culture? We hold up the celebrities, the athletes, the musicians, the politicians, the business leaders. And yes, we even hold up certain pastors. And that is really the goal of life, to get to the top, to climb that ladder, no matter who we have to climb over, just like James and John do to Peter here, right? We'll forget about him for a minute, and we're going to go get our places of power. That is the world's vision of leadership. Sadly, this finds its way in the church all too much. You've probably seen that before, right? When I first, when I was in seminary and applying to positions uh, out of seminary, I knew I was called into adult ministry, but I was 22 years old. And so I applied to over 65 churches, and almost all of them wrote back, you're too young, you need to start in youth ministry, If you want to get on my bad side, you say something like that, right? Because that is the way the world views it. It's this ladder towards success or whatever that means. The way that Jesus views his church is based on gifts and calling 
and purposes. At times in this church, I've loved it. Our oldest person on staff has been our children's minister. That is how the kingdom of God should look. Now, we may laugh. We may shake our heads at this and go, oh, yeah, that's crazy. The world does that. But can we just be honest? I'm a lot more like James and John than I really want to admit. If you're following, we too want places of leadership in order to glorify ourselves. That was really the point of that introduction, right? What what am I doing there? I'm trying to glorify myself by impressing you. That is a temptation we all face. You've got to admit that. We've got to come to this realization. I came across this poem this week by Robert Rains, and I really appreciate it. I'm going to put it up on the screen. And just tell me if you can't see yourself in some of this. He writes, I am like James and John. Lord, I size other people up in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John. Can we all agree to that? We are like James and John. In verse 38, Jesus now responds to their question with these words. And I'm actually going to have you read them out loud on the screen from the New Living Translation because I like the way they, they talk about this. They say, if you, if you read it with me, but Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Let's try saying that five times fast, right? What is Jesus saying here? He's gentle but firm, gracious but direct. He says what he's about to go through is like drinking from a cup and being baptized. Now, if you're not a biblical scholar, that's totally fine. Most of us aren't. But he is referring to two powerful images, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament here. You see, drinking from the cup was used often for in the Old Testament to describe the wrath of God in judgment. An example of that is in Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8. It says, it is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. And then this is the key. In the hand of the Lord of Yahweh is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked on the earth drink it down to its dregs. According to Isaiah 53, maybe the most important passage in the Old Testament about Jesus, he is going to be the one to drink that cup on our behalf. He understood this was his purpose, his reason for coming, to take the judgment we deserve upon himself. He wasn't looking forward to it. Some of us have read his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He directly talks about this, right? He says these words in his prayer, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this, what? This cup, this bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to endure from me. Yet not what I will but what you will. Similarly, Jesus uses this metaphor of a baptism. He's about to go under, so to speak. 
He's about to suffer and die. He's going to be overwhelmed and flooded and immersed. And in Luke 12, 50, he says it this way. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me. And I'm under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. James and John, are you able to do what I'm about to do? Are you able to drink that cup and to go through the baptism I'm about to be baptized in? Look at the first part of verse 39. We can. Have you ever met people like this? Right? They could be watching somebody run a two-hour marathon in the Boston Marathon. I'm like, oh, I could do that. James and John. You got to love these guys. But man, they are clueless. But one day in the next verse, we're going to see. They're going to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. He said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus says very clearly to them, one day you too will experience these things. And we know from history, James is the first apostle to be martyred, to be killed. We know from history that John is exiled to the island of Patmos under the, the rule of Domitian, the emperor Domitian. But to choose, Jesus says, who's going to sit on my right or my left, that's not up to me. That's a decision for the Father, though I'm pretty sure it's going to be me and Pastor Brian. I mean, let's just be real here. <laughs> Again, if you want to run for the hills, go ahead, because that was another joke. But now we get to the real heart of the story. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. This is the same word, indignant, that Jesus actually used when the disciples were turning away all the kids. Remember, they're turning all these kids away, and he becomes indignant. These are the people I want to be able to come to me. They, he, they are indignant by this. And I think they have a right to be, don't you? But you know what? I know enough about them to realize now the reason they're indignant is because they didn't think of it first. Let's just be honest. Like, oh, he got to him first, right? How dare they try to get these positions ahead of us? They all want the box seats in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 42, Jesus called them together. Here we go, another teachable moment. Jesus calls them together. He's going to use this occasion now for his most powerful lesson on leadership in Scripture. He called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. And now would you read verses 43 and 44 on your notes with me? It says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Notice he uses this term Gentiles again. Who are Gentiles? That's who was ruling over them at this point, and the way they did that describes the world's way of leadership. If you're following, according to the world, leadership is a means to being served, to lord it over other people, to demand certain things from other people. That is what the Roman emperor was doing, right? lording it over them. Now, I'm not sure how, we can, how, how much we can fully appreciate how radical these words are from Jesus. I mean, this was spoken in Greek and Roman culture where they thought being a slave was the worst thing that could possibly happen to someone. And in fact, they would rather take their lives than be indebted to someone so much that they had to become a slave. They measured greatness in terms of authority, just like we do today. 
In fact, they referred to the Roman emperor. They worshipped the Roman emperor, check this out, as the son of God. Because he was at the top. He is the one who had the most authority and power in the known world at the time. But Jesus contrasts all of that with the way of his kingdom. He says, listen, guys, true greatness, true leadership in my kingdom is not measured by getting more power. It's by giving away your power. Remember, who is teaching this lesson? The most powerful person to ever walk this earth. A man who could simply touch a person and heal them. A man with one word who could calm the raging sea. A man who could cast out demons just like that. A man who could feed 5,000 people from basically a boxed lunch. And he says, I want you not to seek power, grab power. I want you, like me, to give away power for the sake of another. I have chosen a life of service. And I want you to choose one as well. That's being great in my eyes. I've said this before, but this right here is where the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdom of this world more than anywhere else. This is so contrary to what we're grown up to believe, to seek, to desire, to want. If you're on your notes, in the kingdom of God, K-O-G, leadership is a means to serve others. The way to the top is paved by climbing down. To be first, you must be last. To lead, you must serve. I mean, think about this. The whole goal of life for most of us is to climb this ladder. And when we think, when we reach the top of that ladder, we are now it. I have arrived. I like the view from up here. This is great. And Jesus says, actually, the view is much better when you climb down the ladder. Because that's greatness in my eyes. Paul said it best in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Friends, again, if you're on your notes, the way of Jesus doesn't focus on power, but on empowering. Giving away your power to someone else to encourage them, to equip them, to serve them, so they can be all that God created them to be. I'm curious, how many of you have ever heard of the phrase pulpit envy? Probably not. I grew up in the church. This was a real thing where pastors don't want to share the pulpit with other people, right? They, they just want that platform. When I was in seminary, the first internship I did, they didn't even let me do the announcements in the church. That's how guarded they were. And then I did another internship under a guy by the name of Reverend Linderman. And that is exactly how he spoke. And he's like, all the, he he took tons of interns from from the seminary I was in. And he's just like, yeah, you're going to preach next week. What? You know, I'm only 20, right? You really wanted it? Yes. More than that. More than once. I want to equip you. I want to give you opportunities. I want to, here's the word, empower you to become who God has called you to be. And then I came to Cherry Hills and experienced the same thing with Pastor Jeff. And if you were here last week, we're trying to continue that, right? Luke preached. 
We want to empower people to become who God has called them to be. That's what Christian leadership is. Christian leadership is servant leadership. It's others focused. It's focused on meeting the needs of other people in your life rather than controlling other people for them to meet your needs. Let's be honest. I hate that. How many of you like taking the low position in your relationships? No hands up. Wow. I don't either. It's tough. It is extremely tough to let go of my wants, my needs, my desires, my power, my authority in order to hand that over to somebody else. Let's just take one example. Marriage. You want a thriving marriage? Step down the ladder. Give yourself away for the sake of your spouse. You want a marriage that's constantly at odds? Power up. Demand. My needs, my wants come first. So against my flesh. But Jesus says, you want a great marriage? Lead in the way of Jesus, wives. Lead in the way of Jesus, husbands. That is what will lead to greatness. Jesus finishes his lesson on leadership with what many people believe is the most important verse in the Gospel of Mark. Because it sets forth the entire purpose of why Jesus came. Let's read verse 45 out loud on our notes there. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's my mission statement. Here's what I came for. Here's who I am. This is like his slogan. We all know some of the famous slogans of businesses, right? I'll just name a few. You yell it out to me. Just do it. Like a good neighbor. All right. They get in our heads, don't they? I'm loving it. McDonald's. How about this one? We want to see every generation giving themselves fully to the way of Jesus and his mission. Yay, extra credit in heaven for you. Yes. I have not come to be served. But I have come to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. Ransom. Not a word we use too much today. All the word ransom means is to pay the price to set someone free. It was used in this time to set a slave free. If you wanted to set a slave free, you had to pay their ransom price. The verb form of this is the word redeem. We're a little more familiar with that concept, right? The Old Testament uses this word all the time when describing what God did for the people of Israel when he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. Both of these words are used all throughout the New Testament to describe exactly what it is that Jesus did when he went to that cross. He paid a ransom price to set us free from the slavery we are in to sin and to death. He redeemed us, set us free from a life with no hope, opened up the sea so that we could now cross into eternal life, both now and forevermore. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 7, in him... We have redemption through his blood. That's the price he paid. The forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace. He released us from slavery. 
the greatest person ever to live. The son of man who deserves all glory and authority and privilege came down so low that he offered his life as a ransom for you and for me. Paul describes it this way in my favorite verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just some words, but I want you to really think about what that says today. Some of you have read that a million times. Theologians call that the great exchange. God took my filthy, ragged life and exchanged it for his perfect righteousness. Listen, and here's why this is the most important verse for me in the Bible. I understood, I believed what Jesus did for me on the cross, but I still believed I was a sinner who needed to be saved by grace. And the way I did that is I tried to prove my love to God. But do you know what that is actually saying? That's gone. Steve, you're a saint who sometimes still sins. I have exchanged your life for my life. Sometimes I don't think we realize how good the good news really is. You no longer have to prove yourself to God. He has given you a new identity completely. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees you as righteous. That's the gospel. And that's why it is such good news. The climax of Jesus' teaching here, applying to leadership, is simply this, if you're on your notes. The greatest act of servant leadership in history was Jesus' sacrificial death for our ransom from sin. Who's the greatest leader you've ever heard of? There's only one answer, right? It's a Sunday school answer. Jesus, the greatest leader who had ever walked this earth, the son of man and the son of God to whom belong all glory and dominion and power and authority was a humble servant. He got low so he could lift us up. And now he calls us, at least those of us who choose to follow him, to walk in the same way that he walked. So how's that going for you? What kind of leader are you? What kind of sibling are you? What kind of wife are you? What kind of husband are you? What kind of employer are you? What kind of employee are you? I can go on and on and on, right? Here's the question for us today. If you're on your notes again, am I willing to give away my power to empower others? That's what it comes down to. Am I willing to set aside all the things I want, all the things I desire, all the things I think I'm entitled to and deserve in order to serve the people God has put in my path? If you want to get better at this, I know I do. Here are just two suggestions for us this week. The first one is say no to the world's way of serving ourselves. And I would just say, can I get an amen to this? This is a daily thing, an hourly thing, a minute-by-minute thing, right? I am driven. We're driven naturally for selfishness, entitlement, this desire for power and position no matter the cost. And so daily, I've got to fight with my flesh and put it to death and say, no, I want to lead in the way of Jesus. And to do that, I serve people that God has put in my life. I want to make one thing clear. I know we have some incredible leaders in the room right now. 
And we need leaders. We need leaders of organizations. We need leaders of businesses. We even need leaders of churches. What I'm not suggesting is you just got to quit and not be a leader. No, I think what Jesus is saying to us is simply, how are you leading the people God has placed under your authority? Are you going to use that for yourself? Or are you going to use that to empower others in order to build the kingdom of God? Second, say yes to the way of Jesus by serving others, and here's this word, joyfully. The most surprising verse for me in scripture is Hebrews 12, where Jesus says it was for the joy that was set before him that he gave his life up on a cross. Joy. Joy for what? Joy for you. Joy for me. Joy that he would now be able to be in a relationship with us. So listen, you want to do something great? You want to please and honor Jesus with your life? Then become a servant to all. And something mysterious will begin to happen. You'll actually start to enjoy it. You'll actually discover joy isn't actually at the top of the ladder. I tried my whole life to get there and it was emptier than I thought it was going to be. Joy is at the bottom of the ladder when I give my life for the sake of another. So here's my challenge to every one of you in this room. As I've been talking today, is there one person that's just come across the ticker of your mind where you recognize I've been powering up over them? I've been using my place, my position, my authority. What would it look like for you this week, just this week, one person to get down off your ladder and get down on their level and serve them in the same way that Jesus has served you. Let's take a moment and just pray together. Father, as Chuck said earlier, we never just want to be hearers of your word. We want to be doers of your word. And so in this moment right here, right now, I believe you are present and at work. Show us a person or some people that we have treated according to the way of the world instead of the way of your your kingdom. Give us an idea or a thought about how we can change that starting this week. Lord, as we prepare ourselves to take communion, I pray that it would not just be uh, going through the motions. This is just what we do every Sunday. But that we could just bask. Bask in what it really means. That the Son of Man humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. For our glory our good, for our ransom, for our redemption. We give you praise in the great and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. 
If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.